0: Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, the chance to gather together like this as your adopted ones and bring you glory in front of the angels, including the fallen angels that don't like this one bit. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to stand. Stand firm in the faith, in your name, learning your word. We're grateful for your grace and mercy toward us, your patience, your gentleness, every single day you give us. And Father, most of all, we're grateful and thankful that your Son made this all possible by once for all dying for us on that cross 2,000 years ago, unselfishly, to execute what your love planned in eternity past to save us all. Father, we ask that you bless this message. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us what we need to know this evening. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 3. So I'm very excited about this series. Uh, I think this is um, a topic that we're going to see is pretty deep and pretty uh, vital for our own protection, for our own understanding, uh, to, to not be taken advantage of or even overlook our enemies, as we'll talk about. But so far we've had a lot of moving parts in the first two lessons, Thursday and Sunday so I'm going to do my best to review the key points and keep us on track on this topic. The, clear, the Spirit is clearly building up to something. First of all, I just want to make a couple comments on Sunday morning's uh, teaching on judging, which was excellent, I thought, by the way, just as an explanation. If you're wondering the right perspective on judging, a biblical perspective on judging, uh, it was great and if you still you know, aren't sure, you might want to listen to it again to to clarify your own view of it, to make sure that you're thinking biblically. So, it was a wonderful sidebar. Um, It should and could clear up a lot of misconceptions in our souls. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, again, Sunday morning was was great. It was like, I don't know, the first 20 minutes or so on that topic, but I'm just going to share a couple points that help us draw some righteous lines in the area of judging. So this is something on the board the Spirit gave us, and I just love the way you know it, it gives us a clear a line to see. There's nothing wrong with righteously judging right from wrong. In fact, you could argue that's what the Bible calls us to do. Our judgment translates into evil when we cast a sentence upon another, suggesting punishment even. And by the way, this doesn't necessarily mean just in our actions, but also in our heart. It translates into evil if we cast a sentence upon another, even in our own heart, as we know that God God looks at the heart. But we are called to judge rightly for our own spiritual benefit and the benefit of others. And then we are wise to leave the results in God's hands. Even our perfect Lord, when he was on earth, and during unjust treatment, rather than retaliating, he trusted the Father with making the righteous judgment in the end. Now, if anyone had the right to judge, it was Jesus Christ. But he did not do so while he was on earth in his flesh. So turn to uh, 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 2.21. Even though the Lord was perfect and He was unjustly treated and could have rightly judged, He held it back and trusted the Father to make the judgment in the end. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There's a good example for us to follow. Even though he was in the right, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So even our Lord Jesus didn't pass a sentence on anyone. He even said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we leave vengeance in the hands of God where it belongs. We trust he'll make the right sentences in the end. But as came out on Sunday, to say there's never a right time to make a judgment is a perversion that has sneaked into Christianity. Maybe because of, as I think Pastor mentioned also, all the politically correctness, political correctness in the world beating us over the head for decades now. Maybe it's just whatever, swayed us, right? Brainwashed us into applying this doctrine wrongly. So there is a time to make a, a, an appropriate judgment between right and wrong, and we aren't to fall for... Um, a weakened definition, maybe, of judgment. For example, a lot of Christians want the grace without the truth. That's kind of how I see what, you know, that, that idea. They want the grace without the truth. Jesus came you know, full of grace and truth. Everyone wants the grace, but no one really wants to stick up for the truth. In their minds, there's not even righteous judgment allowed. In, in a lot of Christians' minds. Unfortunately, I think many Christians, who call themselves that, want to fit in with the world. They don't want to be separate from the world or outcast from the world. They want to fit in so they don't stick up for the truth. So remember, we are called to tell the truth in love and not avoid the truth so we can give an impression of love. We're called to tell the truth in love. We can do both. That's what Jesus did perfectly. And then we saw a balanced statement regarding judging. We are not to become judge and jury over spiritually private matters, supposing this or that punishment fits the crime. For example, we cannot judge another's heart, only their actions. Facts only, not assumptions. We can tell them by their fruit, right? We can see the fruit of the tree, but you can't see the roots of the tree. So we got to be careful that we don't judge another's heart, that we think we know the whole situation many times, right? How many times do we do that? So again, judging is good as long as it is righteous. The Lord even told the religious Jews to stop looking at the appearance and to judge rightly. On the board in John 7:24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So again, we're out of line when we cast a sentence upon another, even in our hearts, suggesting punishment. It's God's business alone to make final judgments. And as came out on Sunday. We kind of forget He's the offending party in all this. You know, we, we might get hurt. We might get sinned against but He's really the offended party in all of this. And He's the only one with all knowledge of every situation. So many times we suppose that we know all the facts. We suppose we know what's right in a situation. He's the only one with all knowledge of every single situation. So that's why we have to leave it to Him or we're going to suffer the consequences. So enough said on that. Uh, Again, I recommend you listen to Sunday morning's message again if you want more clarity in your own soul on judging. Back to our main topic, which is the deceitfulness of sin. And I want to share something from Thursday's lesson, which is a particular weakness or deception of the flesh, which refers to our sinful nature on the board. Our flesh is so trained to draw conclusions from what is seen. Kind of back to that brainwashing idea. Ever since you were a child, especially in our technology generations, we were trained to draw conclusions from what we've seen. So it's very hard to untrain that when it's been your whole life. That's how you've been trained by the world, by society. We're told in the Word to walk by faith, not by sight. Correct. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we're told to walk by faith, not by sight. So there's obviously a confrontation here. Our flesh is so trained to draw conclusions from what is seen. With divine timing in view, I read something on Sunday that fits in perfectly with our topic, the deceitfulness of sin. So I'm going to share this with you. And ironically, it comes from another gentleman with the initials A.W., Uh, We saw on Sunday uh, the book by A.W. Pink, The Total Depravity of Man. This is from a man named A.W. Tozer. And just so you know, in context, he's speaking about the physical senses, touch, smell, sight, hearing, taste, okay? That's what he's talking about in context, just so you can see where he's going. So on the board from A.W. Tozer, the world of sense... Talking about our senses again. The world of sense intrudes upon our attention day and night for the whole of our lifetime. It is clamorous, insistent, and self-demonstrating. It does not appeal to our faith. It is here assaulting our five senses, demanding to be accepted as real and final. Isn't that true? Don't we just want to go by what we see because we can, you know, it's tangible So then we don't have to think anymore, right? Maybe it's easier on us. Demanding to be accepted is real and final. Unfortunately, that's the mindset of the scientific person without the truth of God. If I don't see it, I don't believe it. He goes on to say this, but sin has so clouded the lenses of our hearts that we cannot see the other reality the city of God shining around us. The world of sense triumphs. The visible becomes the enemy of the invisible, the temporal of the eternal. That is the curse inherited by every member of Adam's tragic race. At the root of the Christian life lies belief in the invisible. The object of the Christian's faith is unseen reality. So again, these things are at odds. The sin nature just wants us to go by what we see. And don't be foolish to believe in unseen things. That's what your sin nature <laughs> knocks on your head saying, whispering. Don't be foolish to go by faith. Turn to Hebrews 11, 1, verses 1 and 2, just as a reminder of our calling and how the world has deceived us our whole lives. So that's kind of unfortunately our starting point, or the point we have to dig out of. Hebrews 11:1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. Whose approval? God's approval. Hebrews 11.6 goes on to say, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in what? The unseen. There's no faith needed if something is seen. So again, these things are at odds. Again, on the board, Tozer says, Sin has so clouded the lenses of our hearts that we cannot see that other reality, the city of God shining around us. The world of sense triumphs. The visible becomes the enemy of the invisible and the temporal of the eternal. That is the curse inherited by every member of Adam's tragic race. At the root of the Christian life lies belief in the invisible. The object of the Christian's faith is unseen reality. But Tozer's point as relates to our study on the deceitfulness of sin is in the bold there. Sin has clouded the lenses of our hearts. It's deceived us into believing only that which we can see and taste and touch. Where even scientists will admit there's so much unseen in this world that is just as real, even more so. So a couple points from Thursday to think about as we reset our minds on the board. Such is the deceitfulness of sin. It looks for proof where faith is meant to exist. We don't think of sin operating that way. We think of obvious sins, right? We think of overt sins, if, if we're lazy. But when we look into the Bible, sin is insidious, and it's trying to get at our core in the way we think. Such is the deceitfulness of sin. It looks for proof where faith is meant to exist. It tells you you don't need to go by faith. It tells you don't believe that nonsense. Fall in line with the rest of the world. Sin says anything to doubt God. Your sinful nature whispers at you at times anything it can to get you to doubt God. Our sin nature is looking for reasons not to follow God. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You're actually looking for reasons to not do what you know is right? Where's that coming from? Doesn't seem that evil, but where's that coming from? You know, the little whispers, the little suggestions that might not even be a sin in itself. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Might not even be a sin in itself, but a little suggestion for this or that. What's behind that? What is that? What's that motivation saying? Where's it coming from? And also this from Thursday. While the Spirit assures us of our faith, our human flesh lies to us, and so do the fleshes of others. That's how it works. So if you're, if you're unaware of that or naive to that, you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to be deceived. And that's, what's the definition of deception? Deception. You don't know it, right? The battle in Galatians 5, spirit against flesh, flesh against spirit. That's our sin nature. That's the insidious, sinful nature within us, lying to us. While the spirit is there for us as long as we turn to him. He shows us the light. So we're setting the stage to think rightly and fully about sin, So we're not deceived in our daily walks. Something else came up on Thursday, and that is evangelism and how we often forget to challenge the presuppositions of the reasoning crowd, let's call them, that wants physical proof for everything. We often forget to challenge their presuppositions. What are they presupposing? And we learn that we must go back to the basics for their benefit. For example, yes, we have wonderful scientific proofs in this world, but where did these scientific laws even come from? And why are they so faithful? Challenge people on the fundamentals of God and life. This is what came out on Thursday. And don't let your sin nature sneak in there and either make you fear doing so or convince you to go or fall into their high-level proof conversations. Challenge them on the fundamentals of God and life. Don't fall for their high-level proof conversations. Just as you might say to the person clinging to evolution and the Big Bang Theory, well, where did that ball of matter come from that started it all? The amazing thing is that with all the complex answers and discoveries The simplest things can't be answered by the world, by science. So we were encouraged to step back and go big picture and simplify in our evangelism. Why are we trying to match wits with people? Why are we playing their game and following their conversation? Why don't we bring it back to salvation and, you know, the reality of seeing God one day? So on the board, as we live out His great commission, we must follow our Lord's example. We must have courage to take the upper hand, not by high-level conversations, but through simplicity. Isn't simplicity usually the right answer? To get even simpler than what you're thinking, whether it's your lifestyle we're talking about, whether it's conversations about the Lord and truth, doesn't that usually cut right to the core of it and like get all the garbage aside that someone's trying to, you know, make the conversation more complex than it should be? Think of the Lord's use of parables, right? He used a lot of parables. Parables usually had one simple main point to each of them. That's it. So the smartest man in the universe, the all knowing Lord and savior use parables to make one point at a time because he knew who he was dealing with, us. So why don't we follow his type of example? I'm not saying you have to use parables every time you talk to someone about the Lord, but think of simplicity. Don't let them drag you in the mud in the high-level conversations and, and all the details they try to pile on. So again, as we live out His great commission, we must follow our Lord's example. We must have courage to take the upper hand, not by high-level conversations, but through simplicity. Just like the simple fishermen apostles, what did they do? Especially after the Lord resurrected and ascended into heaven, what did they do in the book of Acts? They simply stuck to the gospel of Jesus Christ and preached it without apology. They didn't get caught up in the muck that people were trying to confuse the conversation with. And they were simple, uneducated men, weren't they? But they were very wise. They kept it simple. They obeyed the Lord's command. So that's why, as pastor said, children actually have an advantage when it comes to faith and why we are called to childlike faith. We have to be careful that we don't fall into that same uh, trap that a lot of Christians do, even in their evangelism. Keeping it simple can lead to all the answers. The answers of the reality of God and creation. The only viable answer to man's questions about life and his existence lies through the simplest things, pointing to the simplest things. So in evangelism, instead of putting pressure on ourselves, To prove God to people, which I used to do, you know, in my younger years, and the older I get, the more fruitless I see it is. But instead of putting pressure on ourselves to convince people or prove God to people, we should be putting the onus on the Holy Spirit. We should obey and give the message of the good news, you know, without partiality, in love, and let the Spirit do the job. It may come in different forms for different people, and the Spirit's going to guide you in what to say. But simplicity is the way to go. Stop trying to match wits with people on earthly topics that don't even affect salvation. I've often said to people, you know, especially, again, as I get old and a little more wise, if you really want to know the truth, ask God. He'll reveal it to you if you really want to know the truth. A lot of people go to Him but don't really want the true answer. They're not really open to what He might say to them. So that's between you and the Lord. See, that's putting the onus on the Holy Spirit. You know, and let people know you're not there to convince them and you don't want to convince them. God's been knocking and you're not listening, maybe, but If you really want to know the truth, he'll show it to you. If you really want to know. Our job as evangelists is to share the good news of Jesus Christ and let the Spirit convict people, just like the apostles did with love and boldness. As came out on Sunday on the board, the deceitfulness of sin will tempt you to argue moot points instead of sharing his gospel and letting the spirit grow the seed see we don't think of our sin nature that way right when we think of sin we don't think of that side of things the deceitfulness of sin will tempt you to argue moot points maybe even get intellectual with someone as though you're trying to prove your own ability smarts very subtle right the sin nature is arrogant right I want to show that I can keep up with this person So, I'm going to engage them on their field, in their discussion. That's the sin nature, trying to draw us in to a distraction instead of sharing the honest gospel like the apostles did over and over. And we must remember also, while we go through this process in evangelism, God's in control. God's in control. That's why we fall back on childlike faith, even as we obey His great commission and evangelize. God's in control, isn't He? I mean, if God wants to do something miraculous right in that moment that you're talking to someone, He can do that for that person, right? If they need to see something. And maybe they, maybe they don't. Maybe it's not the right time for any of that. God is in control, though, either way. We forget that when we're evangelizing, like like we're in control and we have to convince somebody. Be relaxed. God's in control. Do your job. Don't trust in your own flesh and your own ability, your own power. Lay it out there and let God work. On Sunday, we expanded on the deceitfulness of sin. This came out in the lesson. Sin is not to be thought of as merely some result we can point to, such as I got drunk or I disobeyed my authorities. If that's where it ends, we're only accounting for part of the nature of sin. Sin is complex. So the Spirit's telling us, don't let that be where it ends. The sin, the actual sin, you know, produced performed is the result. But it's a result of something. It came from somewhere. A system of thinking, for example. Sin is complex. I'm sure we're going to see a lot more about that. Here's a huge understatement. Sin totally complicated the relationship between man and God. Newsflash. Totally complicated the relationship between man and God. So, Man was perfect in the garden. Life was simple. Life was good, truly good in the Garden of Eden. Obedience was enjoyable and good and easy. It was, it was, it was wonderful. There was, there was no um, kickback against obedience by Adam and the woman. It was. This is how life is supposed to be, and it's good. And love was the order of the day. They were just basking in God's love, and the wonderful, peaceful relationship that God designed them to have with Him. And then sin complicated everything, changed everything. It corrupted man. It required judgment by God. So on sin's complexity, this came out on Sunday also, while sin is the active agent, it's the total depravity of man that really describes the effects of sin on man. The total depravity of man really describes the effects of sin on man. So that's where man lies after the fall. On Sunday, we were given a couple working definitions that we're going to be using in this series. So let's revisit these. First of all, regarding the total depravity of man, describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Its effects are devastating to man. In other words, sin has infected the whole of man. There's no part excluded or untouched. There's nothing that was left holy in man. Another way to put it, there's no hope left. Zero hope left for man. There's not even a small part of man to keep hope in because sin is pervasive. It affects every ounce of him every ounce of us. That's one reason sin is so devastating to man. It literally erased any hope. There are also three key areas where the total depravity of man impacts us. Depravity born of sin affects every aspect of man, renders every man unable to please God, and it's universal, affecting every man ever born. Total depravity. Total hopelessness. A side note that came up on Sunday. Uh, This doesn't mean sinful man, including unbelievers, cannot perform some type of good in their lives. So we mustn't like jump to conclusions. Um, On Sunday, we call this relative good. Pastor gave the example of many unbelieving parents that have love for their children. And you can't deny they have love for the children. An unbeliever can certainly help a widow in distress. It happens quite often. Relative good exists and can be performed even by sinful man. The point is that relative good cannot please God. Our second point on the board, depravity born of sin renders every man unable to please God. Relative good cannot please God and satisfy his righteous demands. So this is part of understanding the depths of sin, the depths of the total depravity of man. If we don't understand this, we're going to be, you know, not able to take the next step in this discussion of understanding the deceitfulness of sin. The point is that relative good cannot please God and satisfy His righteous demands. Why is that? Because, as many of you know, God requires purity and perfection. So, something to think about from Sunday on the board. I put a lot of these things on the board for you as they were just kind of mentioned during the lesson. While we are exploring the nature of sin and the total depravity of man... What we don't want to do in the process is make it something that it's actually not. The point is that sin is like a pollutant, making man totally incapable of meeting God's perfect demands. So it's not that there's no good to be found in an unbeliever's life. It's that it's all just relative good. might be good compared to other men on the earth, but compared to God, it is totally insufficient. pastor gave you the example of smoke entering this room and how eventually it would affect and fill every inch of this room, but we'd still be able to breathe. We'd just be breathing polluted air. I've given you the example in the past of a bottle of water that is purified water, purified clean water, but then you just add a little bit of dung into it. Sorry but it paints it nicely, doesn't it? The whole bottle of water now is infected, polluted. There's not like a little part of the bottom bottom of the bottle of water that's going to be okay or the top. The whole thing is infected. There's no way around it. The whole thing that's us and our sinful nature is unacceptable to God. laughing uncontrollably i'm not sure what but it's not that sinful man can't do some relative good it's that his own goodness is now polluted and god's requirements are perfection so what do you do if you're a man and you're, you're running on the treadmill and you're trying to make a list of things that you've done you know pretty good pretty well right better than most relative And then God says, but you don't understand. I require perfection. I can't accept that. You're polluted. I can't accept it. Isaiah 64, 6, we know quite well. Man's righteous deeds are filthy garments to God. So again, it's not that sinful man can't do some relative good. It's that his own goodness is now polluted and God's requirements are perfection. Perfect righteousness is needed to satisfy God which is why Romans 3 says we all fall short of the glory of God. The best man ever that you can think of, that you admire, that is really great integrity, you know, honorable man. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. We cannot meet his standards because we're all infected. So everything we do is infected, even the good things. Makes me think of sin's definition of missing the mark. No matter how close you get to the center, you're never dead on center of the bullseye. You could be a great shot. You could be all in the right area of the bullseye. Man cannot hit dead center. And that's what God requires. No matter how much good man tries to do on his own, he misses the mark. But then, on the board, when God purifies key word purifies the believer through faith in Christ, it's possible for that man to please God again through the perfect righteousness of Christ found in the believer. Philippians three nine. That's where Paul said, I don't want my own righteousness. I want Christ's righteousness. I'm dropping my own righteousness. I want Christ's righteousness. That's the only thing that purifies the believer and makes the good that he does worthy to God. Good, true good to God. But as believers, we still carry around that old sinful nature until the day we die. What Pastor calls the bad roommate. He's with us till the day we die. And it or he is continually trying to deceive us. And this is what the Spirit's warning us about not to fall into the tricks that the old man presents to us. So let's get back to our primary set of principles. Again, the total depravity of man describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Its effects are devastating to man. And depravity born of sin affects every aspect of man, renders every man unable to please God, and is universal affecting every man ever born. So there's literally zero hope for man on his own. On Sunday, Pastor asked us to think about the true nature of sin itself. That's like a worthwhile contemplation on your own time. Just go sit back, pray, think about the true nature of sin itself. It's nature, like how it operates Stop thinking it's simple and neat and can be put into a little package, controlled even. It's infectious, and its influence can spread very stealthily, undercover. Sin nature is wicked in that way. It's very stealthy. So this is not something that we can uh, pinpoint and say that's where it is. And that's all it does. That, that's the mistake Satan wants us to fall into. We're, we're figuring out about the deceitfulness of sin, its depths, the way it operates. I think about how water can find a way through the smallest of cracks. That's how insidious the sin nature is. It'll find a way through the smallest of cracks that we allow it to influence our lives. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday, the simple definition for sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Any act or any lack, I'm sorry, of conformity to God's will. Anything. So, in man's unavoidable relationship to our Holy God and Creator of the universe, we can define sin as the root cause of anything opposed to God's will in our lives. It's the root cause of anything opposed to to God's will in our life. We're looking at the nature of sin and how it works and how it operates. That's what the Spirit wants us to understand in this series. Anyone can make a list of sins, but to understand its source and its operations is another thing altogether. It's like a a mastermind criminal. It's one thing to say, okay, there's a bank robbery, and that was wrong, that's the crime. It's another thing to trace it back to the masterminds behind it and how they got there so that you can maybe figure out the next crime before it happens. Maybe that's not a bad analogy with our sin nature. If we can figure out how he operates, then maybe we're not going to be so easily duped and deceived. And for that, we have to give sin its due respect. We have to give the sin nature its due respect. You've heard the phrase, know your enemy. On the board, we mustn't underestimate the power and pervasiveness of sin, or we will be deceived by it. That's what Satan would like. Underestimate the inner enemy I have within you. Underestimate him. So you don't see it coming. We mustn't underestimate the power and pervasiveness of sin, or we will be deceived by it. Sin is deeper than simply an act. Where did it come from? Why did I do that? Is is it a deceived heart that's the root of the problem? Sin would like to deceive you into thinking it's simpler than it is, but it's an evil, complex, conniving enemy. Just like Satan would like people to think he doesn't exist. I met someone like that a couple weeks ago. I forget who it was exactly, but we had a conversation, a brief one. And he didn't believe in such a thing as Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants you to believe so that you're not ready for attacks. You don't even think there's deception coming at you. And so we could say the same, you know, with the sin nature. The facts are that God hates sin and we're all born in sin. And it's the nature of sin that we're trying to understand so we don't become deceived. Turn again to Ephesians 2, verse 1. <coughs> Ephesians 2, 1. We're trying to figure out the nature of sin. We know what sin is. Even, even you know an uneducated child can know right and wrong, know what sin is. Parents teach them this is wrong, this is right. But what's the nature of sin? Some of you might not even want to go there. <laughs> In your souls, you're like, I don't really want to explore this because it might be painful. It might be hard work. But this is a way that we're going to be rescued from deception. Ephesians one. And you were dead, Does it say not always good? No. Think about the phrase here, guys. (laughs) By nature, children of wrath. This is the worst that it can get. That's the nature we were born with. As came out on Sunday, this passage doesn't say anything about us deserving these things, like based on our own sinful actions. We're not called, you know, children of wrath based on our own actions. We're called children of wrath by our nature that we're stuck with. It simply says, this is where we started from at birth. There we see the devastating nature of man's problem, the pervasiveness of sin within the very nature he was born with. So on Sunday, as part of this like uh, exercise to discover the deceitfulness of sin and how it operates, we were encouraged to personify sin in such a way that it takes on its own character and nature, like a person. So we recognize it as the true enemy of God that it is within us. It's an inside agent. So personifying sin can help us uh, put a, a finger on it, on him, let's say. And I think of the Christian song, many of you have probably heard, Fear is a Liar. But in the song, it doesn't say fear is a liar. It says fear, he is a liar. And that's how we can personify sin. Uh, Give it a name. Hold him accountable in a way. We might say instead of sin is a deceiver, we might say sin, he is a deceiver. Like pastor calls him bad roommate. That's personifying the sin nature. We're being called to look at sin and its nature as an enemy of God, and therefore ourselves. It's one of our three enemies, one of our three great enemies, the world, Satan, and our sinful nature. So on the board, sin is like a disease that every man is born with and infected by. It permeates every cell of our body from birth. Remember how none none of it is left pure? We can't even say our pinky toe is pure, you know, because that part's uninfected. Or I preserve that part from corruption. No, every cell of our body from birth infected with sin. It exists in this world even outside our bodies, infecting nature also. It is therefore the thing that causes persistent tension between God and His creation. God wants us to have this perspective of sin, as we learn more going forward. Hold on to this perspective about the pervasiveness and insidiousness of sin. Again, on the board, sin is like a disease that every man is born with, infected by. It permeates every cell of our body from birth. It exists in this world, even outside our bodies, infecting nature also. It is therefore the thing that causes persistent tension between God and his creation. Satan wants us to hold a limited definition of sin that isolates sin into our personal sins only. And that's what most Christians do. Back to making a list, right? and Leaving it that shallow instead of looking at the heart of the matter. Satan can deceive us that way because we don't take the time to understand the nature of our enemy. Remember on the board, Satan is the father of lies, the great deceiver, and his agency is sin itself. John eight forty four, 44, Revelation twelve nine. Satan is the father of lies, the great deceiver, and his agency is sin itself. So here's our proper perspective. Those two deceivers are working together. Let's call them out, as we should. Let's give them names. Let's not let them fly by like they don't exist, or it's just a thing. Let's give them names. Let's hold them accountable. Let's call them out. We'll close with two points that came out on Sunday. First of all, God intended for man to be lockstep with his will, in love with the one who gave him life, and serving him only. Satan's is the exact opposite, which is the nature of sin. Anything to doubt God, anything to go against God, anything to discredit God. God, when he created man, talking about the Garden of Eden, he intended for man to be lockstep with his will, in love with the one who gave him life and serving him only. And man was totally happy with that. Satan's intention, the exact opposite. And that is the nature of sin. And Satan is the embodiment of sin because he exists as the embodiment of all that is opposed to the holy God of the universe. He's unfortunately the great example, the great proverb, the great byword. Satan is the embodiment of sin because he exists as the embodiment of all that is opposed to the holy God of the universe. And he will use our sinful nature the very best he can, starting with deception about what it really is and how it really works. So that we're not even aware of his tactics. So the Spirit is telling us, no your enemy. Have an interest, take an interest in learning about your enemy. So you're not just some naive Christian walking around, you know, almost thinking you don't have any enemies. That it's all based on you and your own efforts. Know your enemy. There's great deception being targeted at us. And it begins with the willingness to know your enemy so that we can bring God the most glory with our lives and not, you know, waste our lives away. Amen? Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your truth, the truth of your word. We thank you for the examples and the analogies you give us. We thank you that your spirit is guiding us every step of the way to open our hearts and our minds. We just ask, Father, that you show us, show us what we need to see in this series. Help us be humble before you. Help us listen with open ears. We ask that you bless us as we go. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit.